<laughs> so I'm glad I only messed up. Well, okay. I was about to say I'm glad I me only messed up the one thing, but who knows, right? And the night is young. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. All right. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, two important announcements, because, of course, it's been so long. Uh, there are two big events that have uh, really crept up on us uh, during the month uh, that uh, I've been away. So I wanted to make sure to uh, update everybody on those things. First, chronologically first, this coming weekend, this Saturday, is the Signum University Summit on the humanities. Um, if you haven't heard about this, uh, I'm really excited about this. So Signum University is planning, we are, we're, we are working on developing an undergraduate hum humanities program. Uh, and uh, this is going to be really cool. Like not only are we doing an undergraduate degree for the first time, expanding our program massively to include an undergraduate degree, uh, we are also really we're kind of doing what we often do at Signum University and thinking outside the box. The humanities are in trouble everywhere. Um, I, you know, see news all the time about schools that are shutting down their humanities programs and cutting things and firing their faculty and everything. It's terrible. Um, and I think we can do better for the humanities. I think that there, we need to have some new models for how we uh, teach and structure the humanities. There's a lot in higher education, actually, that needs a bit of a... Uh, 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 you know, let's let's go out and come in again. Uh, and I think the humanities are really are, are really big there. So here's what we're doing. So Signum University is hosting a summit meeting on the humanities. So for anybody who is actually involved in teaching the humanities, anyone who uh, uh, teaches any humanities discipline, um, you're welcome, invited to come and discuss this with us. We're going to have a, a working conference, a one-day conference this Saturday, the 25th of July, uh, in which we're going to get together and we are going to discuss what we can do, what a new humanities program will look like? What would a, a humanities program for the 21st century look like? I've got some ideas. I've got some plans for what I would like to do with a humanities program, um, which I'm sharing with you know people who are coming just to kind of start conversation. And then we're going to talk about it. We're going to make some, uh, we're going to make some plans. We're going to kind of lay down some principles and, and discuss what does a forward thinking 21st century humanities program look like? And then after we have that discussion, we're then going to take it and, and apply that practically uh, and take some of the wisdom that we gain from that conference, that we, you know, things that we've learned from our colleagues who come together to discuss. Uh, and we're going to we're going to publish our results firstly, and then we're going to uh, the, the results of the summit. And then we're going to uh, work it into uh, our plans. We're going to integrate it into the undergraduate program that we are launching. So anyway, that's I'm really, really excited about this project, uh, and we are, uh, uh, we're, saying we're getting ready for this. So it's coming up very soon. It's this coming Saturday, the 25th of July, as I say, but there's still time uh, to get involved if you would like to attend. Uh, what you need to do is send an email to humanities at signumu.org. Uh, so just send an email to humanities at signumu.org uh, and just to express your interest, say that you are interested in attending the conference, explain, uh, you know, sort of what you do, S send us a, a copy of your CV uh, and we will we, we will connect you. So um, anyway, that's what's happening. Yeah. Uh, Brandon says, as a physics major, I love this idea. Yeah. You know. 
this is one of the other things that I'm wanting to work on. You see, it's not just like to make a better like humanities major program for folks who want to be humanities majors. Um, but Brandon, one of the things that I like that kind of annoys me most about the way that the humanities are handled in modern higher education is that the kind of humanities instruction that is given to engineers is generally very ineffective. Um, I mean, I'm sure if you were an American, you had to labor through like, you know, a few humanities courses, which were like, you know, the probably the humanities for engineers courses that, uh, you know, that somebody was sort of compelled to make uh, in order to satisfy everybody's requirements. And, uh, and, and like very, very little is ever done to make it clear to anybody, either to the, <laughs> to the engineering students or to the faculty even who teach the course, how this course is really designed to be, really could have an impact on the life and career of the engineer, which it really obviously could. So anyway, it's, um, it's going to be... Uh, it's going to be really good. Now, those of you who aren't Americans are like, why would engineers be studying the humanities at all? Well, that's another problem, and they totally should. Uh, but anyway, there's lots of... Uh uh, there's lots of things uh, that we can do that I think that we can do better, and I'm I'm really excited to uh, work through ideas there. So, that's what um, that's what that's the first thing that's happening. That's just in a few days. This coming Saturday, the 25th. So, as I said, humanities dot humanities at signumu dot org uh, uh, to express your interest. Send us your your CV, uh, and that would be great. Okay. Second thing, uh, which is also really big and really important and quite soon, and that is MythMoot, the biggest conference of the year on the Signum University calendar. Uh, now, we announced, and most of you will probably have heard about this, but we did make the decision, we felt that we had to do this, um, that we're going we're gonna to take MythMoot entirely online this year. Um, still really wanted to do that uh, in person, but we decided it was definitely most prudent the way that things are going right now to uh, to take that online. So we're doing a completely virtual MythMoot this year, uh, and it's going to be great. Our team has been working really, really hard uh, on uh, making a really excellent experience. So here's, what, here's what's going to happen. You may remember that last year we introduced MootCast. Right, which was which enabled people to sort of virtually uh, participate or at least attend. Right, you were able to tune in live to the individual paper sessions and stuff, and you were able to get uh, uh, access to the archives. Uh, right, so you go back and listen to uh, other things that you missed and stuff. So that was really cool, and we're still offering Mootcast. Mootcast is our kind of like. I want to be a fly on the wall, you know, and still be able to see all the all the. Uh, uh, you know, the, the talks and stuff. So Mootcast is still available, but we have an additional experience because, uh, like I said, we're not kind of, we're not content to let MythMoot just become, you know, a couple days in which people give, you know, talks online. Like, that's cool and everything, but it's not MythMoot. You know, it would be such a major loss. And of course, it's going to be a major loss not to be able to uh, be there in person with everybody anyway. But, but we wanted to mitigate that loss, as, that loss as much as possible. We wanted to make sure that everybody, that we, 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 tried, to, that we tried to capture as much of the, the fun and the opportunity to, uh, to, to hang out and all the extra things uh, that go on at MythMoot. We wanted to enable that as much as possible uh, in an online way as we do this. So that 
So there's a second enrollment. There's a new enrollment level. So there's Mootcast, which is the basic, like you just get access to the talks. Um, but there's also Moot Hub, uh, which puts you at the center of all of the Myth Moot action. And that gives you access to all of the, the social channels and all of the social events. And we're still doing things like our costume uh, ball. And we're still doing uh, all of the uh, the fun opportunities. Like, you know, when you go to a conference and you get to like and somebody awesome is there like Amy Sturgis and Verlin Flieger you know to uh, uh, and uh, 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 John DiBartolo and David Delagardel who's uh, the uh, incredible weaponsmith who uh, uh, whose work is I, I don't know if you've ever seen it. it's amazing anyway so we really cool people who are coming to Mythmoot and but like they're there right and you're there and so like you like not only get to hear their talks but like after the talk you get to you know to to sort of hang around and, and wait and, 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 you know, go up after their talk and introduce yourself and stand and have a chat with Verlin Flieger. Or, of course, again, you're at Mythmoot, right? So maybe you get to actually sit and have lunch with Verlin Flieger one day and s- sit at her table. So cool, right? Um, so uh, anyway, so all, all of those kinds of opportunities we are trying to preserve uh, in, uh, through, through Moot Hub. So it's really going to be, um, it's really going to be a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> eat dinner with Douglas Anderson, for example, Rowan of Gondor. That's a kind of thing that might have been able to happen at previous Myth Moods. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, that's that's what we have available. So so Moot Hub is going to be as far as we can make it, the complete experience of Myth Mood. Uh, and I'm, I'm really excited about this. It's not going to be the same, but it's going to be pretty awesome, I think. Uh, and of course, the cost is obviously much less than it was since we're not having to pay for the venue, which is the major cost. Uh, so we were able to take the price way down below uh, the original cost, of course, of the conference. So um, anyway... Definitely wanted to urge you to look into that. Go to the Signum University homepage, signumuniversity.org. Scroll down a little bit and you'll see not only uh, the events page for our Humanity Summit, so you can see lots more information. We put a whole Q&A about the Humanity Summit there uh, on that page. But, of course, you can also see the MythMoot page, which will give you all the registration uh, options and everything there. So, again, uh, just go. Yes! Shippy is going to be there. Uh, so Tom Shippy's going to be there. Verlin Flieger is going to be there. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, we're going to be we're going to be uh, uh, bringing everybody together there. Um, uh, Amy Sturgis, Tom Shippy, Verlin Flieger, John D. Bartolo, David Delagardel. Uh, it's going to be fun. There's going to be a lot of people there. We're going to be doing um, Verlin Flieger wrote a play and we're going to be doing a live premiere performance of uh, of the the play that she wrote that's in her book that just got published. Uh, so really, really cool. Um, uh, anyway, lots of fun. So that is, as you can see, Druid's Fire just posted the link uh, there in Discord. Uh, August 6th through 9th are the dates, of course. That is the fir- that is from Thursday through Sunday uh, of the first, uh, that, you know, that, that first weekend uh, there in August. Well, technically, I guess the second weekend since the first and second is... Anyway, the we- the dates are the 6th through the 9th. Let me just stick with that. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, so... Um, uh, so that's uh, hu- so two huge things: our Humanity Summit coming up this weekend, Mythmoot coming up to a fortnight thereafter, a little bit less than a fortnight thereafter. Uh, Evil Doctor Cannon says, "Will there still be a reenactment?" I don't know. I'm kind of working on it. that. One's going to be tough. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to be able to do uh, 
reenactments. Uh, that's that is uh, that's that's going to be challenging. That's going to be challenging. Um, we could attempt a Lotro reenactment. Yes, we could attempt a Lotro reenactment. And that could work with some things. We'll, we'll have to see. We'll have to see what we can do. I'm not sure about that. Um, but, um, <laughs> yes, Sam is suggesting we enact a Numenorean Palantir meeting. Yeah, that's kind of... <laughs> that's kind of it was actually funny. So, Sam, I'll tell you a funny story. We were... Uh, uh, when we, People were suggesting names for what we could call this new, you know, enrollment tier uh, of um, uh, of MythMoon. We ended up calling it Moot Hub to correspond with MootCast, which we already had uh, last year, which worked really well. Uh, but there were a bunch of people who were making suggestions, and one uh, popular suggestion was the Palantir Experience. But of course, my first response when I heard the suggestion, the Palantir Experience, was, "Oh, you mean like the experience where you tune in and then you have your mind dominated and your your soul is left naked before the, lid, the lidless eye? Like that's maybe maybe not what we want to evoke." You know, we have to make sure that we're being clear in what sort of Palantir experience exactly we're uh, uh, we're we're evoking there. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, Edith says that's sort of what team meetings are. Yeah, it's true. I know for many people, uh, you know, some of your Zoom meetings probably feel like that. <laughs> I get that. I get that. Um, <laughs> uh, but um Anyway, uh, yes, JJ, there will still be a room of requirement uh, uh, at 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 MythMoot. We're going to be doing uh, gonna, there's and, and and there's going to be still a, a a merchandise center and all kinds of things, as well as like. Uh, you, you know, for those of uh, for those of you who've been able to come to Mythmoot, you'll know how much fun we've had. You know, s- sitting around the the fire pits outside and talking into the night and stuff. We'll have uh, opportunities to be able to do stuff like that as well. So um, it's going to be it's going to be really good. I'm excited about it. It was funny. I was trying to explain this to my family. I'm like, well, so. On the one hand, I'm not going to have to leave now uh, to go to Mythmoot, so I'm not going to be driving down to Virginia like I usually do, but I'm not going to really, I'm I'm still going to pretty much be there the whole time. Uh, So, uh, you know, I'm not uh, going to pretend I'm in Virginia, um, because it's going to be pretty immersive, and I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, Anyway, um, so, okay. Those are my announcements. Sorry for lingering on them for a little bit, but they're both very big announcements and they're also very imminent announcements. Uh, so, uh, so there we go. All right. Let us get back to the text. Um, okay. Gandalf had just... Uh, dis- we, so we just finished Gandalf's reading uh, of the text from Isildur. And we talked about the significance of that. I think it's a really fascinating example. Um, as I was saying last time, like a month ago, um, it's almost, it's almost like a, uh, almost like a laboratory experiment in the, inf- in the effect of the ring, right? If, as we were speculating, I mean, it sounds like Isildur wrote that, like that it, it, you know the the text originally came from his diary that he wrote like that night you know that you know he he wanted to write down the significant events that had just occurred like you know the death of his father and uh of Gilgalad and the overthrow of Sauron um and of course 
the ring, right? And so seeing what looked like the ring in the very initial stages of beginning to take hold on Isildur's mind, and we could see how similar the shape of that was to the way that we saw that taking hold on Frodo's mind uh, back in the parlor of Bag End in chapter two of the fe- of book one of the Fellowship of the Ring. And of course, that we also saw in a much more advanced stage, of course, uh, in Bilbo uh, in chapter one, when he was trying to give up the ring. Um, and that is, uh, um, I think, really, really interesting to see. And we can see his rationalizations and stuff. So the patterns, I think, begin to come sort of clearer there. And I do... Um, suspect that uh, he is, uh, we can see him beginning to rationalize in very similar ways to uh, what we saw uh, the hobbits doing before. Um, It also suggests to me that Isildur's remember that Gandalf suggests to Frodo in the Shadows of the Past that um, uh, that the effect of the, that the ring had such a comparatively gentle effect on Bilbo, in large part because he was, um, uh, in in large part because he started his possession of the ring with pity, right? Because he was acting so contrary to the kinds of impulses that the ring raises, right? Like witness Deagol and his murder, um, that Bilbo's relationship with the ring begins with this with this opposite, with his choosing not to kill Gollum and instead having pity on him. Isildur is in an interesting kind of middle ground, right? On the one hand, he he and Gollum have something in common, right? Which is that they both slew the former holder of the ring and took the ring from his cold, dead hand, right? Well, not cold, hot, dead hand in the case of Sauron, right? But still, um... Uh, smoldering hand, perhaps, but nevertheless, dead hand uh, still. Um, whereas, again, Bilbo hadn't, though clearly it's not the same with Isildur, right? Isildur's not Gollum, right? He didn't murder his friend in order to seize the ring from him. Um, his defeat of Sauron was obviously, you know, he was provoked, right? I mean, it was, it's, it was like, it's not, there, was, there wasn't anything wrong with overthrowing Sauron. That was a good thing. That was like an end of an age caliber of good thing, right? Um, And yet, it's still not the same as with Bilbo. And so I think that we can see some evidence that the ring is affecting Isildur more strongly than it did Bilbo, even if differently, perhaps, than it did Gollum, right? So, uh, again, it's it, it makes for a fascinating test case, which is really interesting since, of course, that's all we have, right? I mean, the total number of data points that we have for how the Great Ring affects people are four, right? Isildur, Gollum, Bilbo, and Frodo are the only mortals who have ever held the thing. So they're the literally the only data points that we can possibly have um, on how, uh, how the, the Ring affects them. So the fact that we not only get what amounts to, of course, for Gandalf's... So for Gandalf's purposes, as we'll discuss in a minute, the really important thing about this scroll, about this, you know, the, this testimony of Isildur that he found, um, is that he he now has an empirical test, right? Um, if it's true, if Isildur is right, that 
the letters that he saw in the ring might still be read if you have the strength of will to put the 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 thing in the in the fire for a while um then it's provable right gandalf has a test which will make the uh the 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 long the longer route it, it's a shortcut right instead of uh rigorously tracing the provenance of the ring from Frodo all the way, you know, from Bilbo and Frodo all the way back to Sauron, um, he can just do a direct test on the ring itself. That's the number one reason why this discovery really matters to Gandalf, right? But, um, but there's also more than that. In addition to that piece of evidence, we also get this, what I find in context, to be a really moving um, first-hand testimony of the first mortal who has been betrayed by Sauron's ring itself, right? And I think that it's a really important... It almost works like a kind of framing mechanism for the conversation that's going to be happening after this, right? Um, When Frodo takes up the ring again... We've had one warning at the beginning of the story, right, with Bilbo and with Bilbo's difficulty in giving it up. We've already seen, Gandalf has already seen what the ring can do, a glimpse of what the ring can do to its bearer, right? Bilbo, remember, came to grips with that as well, came to understand more perfectly what the ring does to its bearers in his moment of realization in the in the hall of fire remember put it away i understand now he says right um we will see of course what's going to happen to frodo down the road but before this moment which we are building up to eventually at the end of the council of elrond of frodo's choice to take up the ring um, before, right before we get that, sort of framing that discussion, uh, we have this testimony of the very first ring bearer and the other warning. And of course, it makes me remember now that we were commenting on how, at least I was commenting on how odd it was uh, that Elrond and Gandalf seemed to be in some sort of conspiracy to not tell the story of exactly what happened when Bilbo gave up the ring, right? And um, one of the things, one of the effects of that, um, and I don't mean that this is necessarily an effect that Elrond and Gandalf themselves were going for, but it's certainly an effect of the sort of the narrative presentation here, is that instead of just being reminded all the way back to chapter one of book one, um, what happened to Bilbo, we instead get, not reminded, but informed of what happened way back at the very beginning of the Third Age, um, providing an even kind of deeper context for what is going to be, for for the significance of what Frodo is taking on himself. And that's something that strikes me here. Um, and, And it's striking me much more strongly than... I've ever been struck by this before as I've been reading through the Council of Elrond. Often, when we get to the end, and I know I'm doing spoilers, right? Spoiler, Frodo's going to choose to take up the ring. Um, but, but when we get to the end of the chapter and Frodo takes up the ring, the significance of that step, right, of that choice of Frodo's, I think I've tended to always think of that 
primarily as Frodo taking upon himself to do what needs to be done, right? That is, Frodo kind of putting himself forward, and to use Sam's phrase, right? Um, uh, kind of putting himself forward uh, to 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 do the deed, right? I don't think I've I've fully seen that in this moment. Of course, the element of self-sacrifice in it uh, is going to be very clear later on, right? But I don't think I've ever paid sufficient attention to that here and now in the Council of Elrond. Um, but again, this is something that I'm finding really jumping out at me uh, from the pages of Isildur, or from the, the page of Isildur's scroll here, um, as, we're, uh, as we're thinking about this here at the beginning. Um, so, um, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Okay. Let us get into... Let us move forward then from Isildur's scroll. Gandalf's continuing words. When I read these words, my quest was ended, for the traced writing was indeed as, as Isildur guessed in the tongue of Mordor and the servants of the tower, and what was said therein was already known. For in the day that Sauron first put on the one, Celebrimbor, maker of the three, was aware of him, and from afar he heard him speak these words, and so his evil purposes were revealed. At once I took my leave of Denethor, but even as I went northwards, messages came to me out of Lorien that Aragorn had passed that way, and that he had found the creature called Gollum. Therefore I went first to meet him and to hear his tale. Into what deadly perils he had gone alone, I dared not guess. Okay. Um, yeah, Tarlonio, I do agree. That must have been a very horrifying day for Celebrimbor. Um, the day when Celebrimbor realized that he had been set up all along, that he had been manipulated, um, that his own desire to his own love of making things and his desire to make new things um, and to pursue this very elvish passion for uh, trying to shape Middle-earth and, and prevent the decay of Middle-earth, which is what we see the Elven Rings doing, the, the three rings that Celebrimbor made, um, you know, his masterpieces, of which there were three, and you've got to think that that's just a little bit of a shout-out to Grandad, right? I mean, like, is there any question that he was going to make three when it came to it? Um, this is for you, Grandpa. Uh, yeah, yeah. And now, and to realize he, he was just being made Sauron's tool the whole time, that he's not only failed to make rings of power that enable him to accomplish the great end that he seems to have had in mind in wanting to make the rings of power, um, but indeed has made him vulnerable uh, to the manipulation and control uh, of, of Sauron. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, now you're right, Al, Al Carlotte, that uh, the bearers of the three noticed Sauron's betrayal and took off their rings. Yeah, this is the moment when they did. When Celebrimbor is aware of him, yes, they took off their rings um, and didn't wear them after this. And so that was a failure on Sauron's part. Um, <laughs> I saw somebody comparing it to 
uh, yeah, JJ was saying it was like Sauron accidentally hit reply all, right? Uh, yeah, that, uh, you know, Sauron didn't realize that his microphone was hot, right? I mean, he didn't realize it was, it was going to be a two-way feed um, and that they would be able to be aware of him uh, in, uh, uh, you know, in the same way originally. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, first time user problems. Exactly. Aranas, that, that does happen. That does happen. It is possible, of course, Chris, that his arrogance betrayed him. Um, I also think it's possible that he underestimated Celebrimbor. Um, I've always, I've always seen this or, or perhaps wanted to see this. I have to admit, I've always had a bit of a, uh, a bit of a weak spot for Celebrimbor. We don't know very much about him, um, but he's pretty high on my list of, you know, the uh, the sort of great uh, mythic figures in Tolkien's histories, which we about which we know very little, but in whom I'm really interested. Um, I've always really liked Celebrimbor, and I felt bad for Celebrimbor. Um, but um, anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, Sam says he underestimated the elves and overestimated the dwarves. Well, Sam, I'm not sure he doesn't underestimate the dwarves, too, uh, in the sense that the dwarves are able to hold out against him and don't succumb to his corruption in the way that he was quite hoping and planning that they would. Right. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so. Uh, yeah, good. Brandon says that. Celebrimbor's moral success here when his creation is uh, stolen from him as compared to his grandfather's shows that he was the better elf in the end. Yes, yes. Uh, we do see Celebrimbor, the, just the, the act of him realizing his error, taking off the ring. Um, yeah, you've got to think, Brandon, Feanor would probably not have played it like that, right? Had the same thing been going on the other way around. Um but, um, yeah, uh, Edith and uh, uh, Molly Bayberry are thinking about the destruction of the Elven Rings. Edith was asking, is there, was there no question of destroying the Elven Rings? Um, and I don't know, uh, Edith, if they would think about destroying, because on the one hand, like, they took them off, right? And as long as they're not using the rings, they're not, they were not subject to the domination of Sauron. Sauron's hold over the three rings functionally prevented them using the three rings. But I don't think they would have needed to destroy the rings. Um, I, I'm not sure that the rings would have been sort of dangerous without being worn, right? Um, so I'm not sure that, that destroying them was sort of on the table, but maybe, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't see any clear reason to think that uh, they would have needed or wanted to uh, to destroy them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Arden Crayon is comparing uh, Sauron's control to to uh, hacking the Three Rings with ransomware. Well, there's some similarities there. I agree. I agree. Um, yes, Break Tales. I do wish that we had more. 
more of the Celebrimbor story. I mean, I, I, I started liking Celebrimbor as soon as I read that one sentence that Christopher Tolkien added into the Silmarillion about him leaving uh, uh, his father, Kurufin, uh in Nargothrond. Um, you know, when the fact that Celebrimbor was simultaneously one of the descendants of Feanor who was most like Feanor, and yet who was separating himself from the works of the Feanorians, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, Celebrimbor is, in a sense, um, I mean, he's not Feanor, right? He's, he's still only like the junior varsity version of Feanor, but still, he's like the second chance, almost, at Feanor, right? Not quite. He's, you know, he's, he's definitely the, you know, the, the, the sort of diet version of Feanor, but he doesn't fall, in the same way that Feanor does. And in fact, we see him repudiate the deeds of his father. So he turns away from what Feanor did. He turns away from what his own father, you know, the, uh, the Feanor's sons did. Um, and, you know, even in the, the choice that he makes, you know, the, the rings, the elvish rings of power, they're fairly humble, Right? I mean, it's not... Um, I can't imagine that if Feanor were making Rings of Power, he would have done it like that. Right? That That's the kind of power the ki- uh, that he would have been interested in, necessarily. Right? Yeah, Edith, he's almost like the anti-Feanor, and I certainly find that very attractive. I mean, I think of... Uh, you know, sometimes I... Um, um, sometimes I... Um, You know, I think of Manwe weeping for the marring of Feanor, right, after the darkening. And, you know, it, it's definitely, I feel that, right? I definitely feel that. And so the idea of Celebrimbor being almost like, you know, a small-scale do-over version, you know, it, that's really attractive, I think. Um, okay, let's see. Um, okay. <laughs> right. Uh, Dracon Tarachni says, uh, Indeed I am, Feanor, one might almost say. Feanor as he should have been. It's exactly something like that. Exactly something like that. Um, yeah. Now, And you're right, Alcarlote, that uh, both Celebrimbor and Feanor get baited into helping the Dark Lord while thinking they're working against them. There is a real tragedy to that, especially given the repudiation of the, you know, the whole Feanorian gig, right, that Celebrimbor did. And for him to find in this moment, right, that he's um, that he's messed it up, right, that he got suckered in too. Not exactly like Feanor did. Um, but that he was deceived in some ways. The, the deception is more subtle, right? That, I mean, like, Feanor knew who Melkor was, right? And still got ended up getting manipulated, right? Um, Celebrimbor got bamboozled, and that's kind of, it's both worse and better in some ways. But anyway, it's still got to be a really bad moment, Uh one has to think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Turambar says that Celebrimbor, unlike Feanor, was also friends with Galadriel. Yes, or or maybe Turambar of many names, I would say. Uh, Galadriel was friends with him, <laughs> right? That's the real difference. Both of them, both of them, kind of, you know, connect. Were connected with Galadriel. Uh, she uh, had nothing to do with the one, and uh, uh, and did you know have something to do to do with the uh, the other? So, um, yes, yes. Okay. Um, Let's see. Wolfhound is asking. At that time, Sauron had control of all the human and dwarf ring owners, so he had the great, and he had the great ring. So, how did he not take over the world? How will it be different if Sauron gets the ring now? Um, okay, so yeah. First of all, he doesn't exactly control the dwarf ring owners. The dwarf rings were a failure. Um, that's why he put out a recall notice on the dwarf rings. He tried was was wanting those back because uh, he did not get the kind of leverage that he wanted and was hoping for um, uh, over the dwarf uh, wielders. But Sauron kind of was taking over the world uh, at that point. Um, I mean, the wars between Sauron and the elves of Eriador when Celebrimbor is finally destroyed, um, it was kind of a big deal. uh, And it's only the Numenorean interruption that uh, disrupted that. Um, Had he not... Had Sauron not made the decision to go after Numenor, right, to sort of set his war in Middle-earth aside and uh, uh, go out to Numenor and take on that problem, um, uh, things would have gone much worse uh, for Middle-earth than they had. Um, Exactly, Aranas, he was working on taking over the world. It was a, it was a work in progress at that point. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and when Sauron comes back from Numenor, he finds that Middle-earth has gone straight to the dogs in his, you know, uh, since he's been gone and all of his, you know, many of his conquests have been reversed and Gilgalad is stronger than ever. And, oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Exactly. Um, yeah, had he not gone to Numenor, uh, they would have been conquering him. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was the right move for him uh, because Gogolad was allied with the Numenorians, uh, and the Numenorians absolutely had the power uh, to destroy Sauron's armed forces. Which they kind of do. Um, I mean, remember that the when Arpharazon invades uh, and arrays his army against Sauron there in the South Gondor, um, it's it's uh, the most lopsided battle, one of the most lopsided battles that's ever recorded. The army of Sauron won't even take the field; they run uh, because there's just not even any hope. Uh, so. That's how dominant the Numenorean army was at that point. Uh, so, yeah, no, it's, um, there's no question that the advent of the Numenoreans turned the tide uh, of that war there. Um, but okay, without that, had it not been for the Numenoreans, Sauron was well on the way uh, there. Um, yeah, yeah, good. 
Um, yeah, Brandon, I agree. The Second Age is a much more profoundly dark period in Middle-earth history than we think about. It's true. Uh, the Second Age is so dominated by the story of Numenor, <clears throat> right, that if you try to think of the story just of Middle-earth, right, just kind of put yourself somewhere in Middle-earth, like somewhere in the middle of Eriador, say, and think through the entire history of what we know of the Second Age, and it's pretty grim. It's, it's pretty grim. Uh, and I do agree. It's going to be very intriguing to see how the Amazon series handles this stuff, uh, as I certainly am very hopeful that they will. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, oh, Sam, I hope we get Aldarion and Arendus too. Uh, I will be very interested to see uh, what we get from Numenor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, and Al Carlate, I agree with the Numenorians' intervention before our Farazon's invasion. Um, wishing to know more about what was go- going on in Numenor at that time. Yeah, no, there's so much that we don't know there. Um, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Evil Dr. Cannon, I'm not sure they have the rights to that either. Well, we'll, we'll see. That's still a mystery. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, no, Sauron is... Uh, the, things are really dark in Middle-earth for the majority of the Second Age. They really are. I mean, it's... Uh, um, yeah, yeah, I agree that that's something that's easy to overlook uh, as we are thinking about these things. Um, yep. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, good. Okay. But let's, um, let's go up to the, we've jumped ahead to the Celebrimbor bit. When I read these words, my quest was ended. Remember that he was, what he was looking for was not the sort of the account of his elder that is it's not it's not that he was interested in seeing what um learning the kinds of things that we were looking at about Isildur, right? What was Isildur's experience like? Though I'm sure that Gandalf was interested in that as well. And I can't imagine that the similarities between... I'm sure the word precious jumped off the scroll to Gandalf as much as it does to us, for sure. Um, It has been called that before, Gandalf said to Bilbo, and now he's going to be saying how true that is, right? That is truer than I knew when I said that to Bilbo. Um... But remember, what he went seeking was evidence, right? He Remember that his reasoning was Sauron claims to have knowledge of what the One Ring looked like. And who has seen the One Ring? Who could possibly know? Where, you know, great as his lore was, it must have a source. How did he learn, uh, Saruman, learn what the ring looked like and he logically concluded it has to be an eyewitness account from Isildur because he's the o- his was the only hand prior to anybody else, right? Prior to Bilbo and probably Gollum, um, who had held the One Ring. And so therefore, and of course he knew that Saruman had access to the Gondorian archives. So he went there looking for a test. I think it's interesting that he describes this as his quest 
and the end of his quest. The end of his quest that took him to Gondor from Ithilien, where he was hanging out with Aragorn, trying to figure out where Gollum was, right? On the one hand, yes. Um, but also, I think, clearly, in the sense of the quest that he set out with Aragorn uh, on originally, right? Which was to solve the mystery, right? He needed to know for sure whether or not Bilbo's ring was Sauron's ring. Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting to me here is that he says my quest was ended. Well, technically it isn't, actually, right? Uh, that is to say, if if the finding of the empirical test that will confirm the identity of the ring could certainly be seen as the end of his quest, well, you'd think the end of his quest would be chucking the ring in the fire at Bag End, Right. Um, that this is obviously a crucially important step. He's unearthed the critical piece of information that he needed, but he's not yet got an answer to his question, which is, how can I be sure? Right? I need to confirm. Um, I have a dark suspicion. After Bilbo's departure and the struggle Bilbo had giving up the ring, I've got a dark suspicion that this ring might be, could possibly be, Sauron's ring. And remember, we've talked about how slow, naturally, how slow Gandalf would be to come to that conclusion, given the uh, assurances he's received from the head of his order, right? From the leading global expert on the rings of power. Um, but he's been entertaining that suspicion. Um, and you'd think, again, with that need for proof, but his quest is ended. Right? He knows. He knows because he remembers what Bilbo said, and he's now read what Isildur said. And I think, although he doesn't talk about it here, um, you know, he talks about the empirical test, and obviously the empirical test is important, but I think that Gandalf doesn't need it. Gandalf knows now, right? Um, it, just as he said to Frodo back in chapter two, um, uh, I no longer doubt my guess, right? Um, when Frodo asked him if he was still guessing, he said, you know, uh, known, I've known much that only the wise know. Remember how he reacted to that question? Um, do you really know it or are you only guessing? Um, in retrospect, that, um, that question must have stung a little bit, right? Because, of course, he didn't know and he's not known and it took him a long time to know. Um, and in some ways, it's, the problem is not that he's guessing. The problem is that he hasn't been guessing soon enough, right? He should have guessed sooner. Um, and um, yeah, I, I agree, Tony. It's the proof to Frodo that is a big deal there. I mean, it is, of course, the final confirmation. But uh, it's clear that as soon as he reads this scroll, Gandalf is sure. Right. Because, again, I, I think that he can read between the lines here as well. He can. It's all he needs to hear are the ways in which Isildur is describing it is to hear Isildur use the word precious. Right. And now he knows. Right. Yes. OK. Um, this must be. This has to be. Um, uh, now, I agree for thoughtless Gandalf's peer reviewers would definitely insist on the test. Definitely. And he's th a thorough enough scholar, actually, to go and perform the test. Right. Uh, but um, 
but yeah, it seems pretty, it's so it's it's interesting to me that he says so conclusively his quest is ended as soon as he's read that because again on like on a literal level that's that's it's not true right now yes okay like that's this is crucial he now knows the test that he can perform but he's not performed it yet right and yet he uh, uh, he doesn't he doesn't need it um, he's clearly already convinced. Um, Yes, agreed, Sam, that in Bag Andy expects the script to show up. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Anger says, is it, is it a quest for knowledge or a quest for proof? Well, it was both, right? Um, but his own quest was trying to learn for sure where the halfling's ring came from, right? Where, what is the nature of Bilbo's ring. Um, and now he knows. Yeah, as Arden Crayon says, Dr. Gandalf is sure of his diagnosis. He merely has to present Frodo with the test results. Uh, yes, yes. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, for the traced writing was indeed as a Sildor guest in the tongue of Mordor and the servants of the tower, and what was said therein was already known. This is an interesting thing, right? Um, Okay. Do you see the interesting point there? Gandalf, in preventing his proofs, remember Galdor wanted to hear the proofs? Um, In presenting his proofs, Gandalf is leaving nothing to chance here. Here's my point. Does it matter what the script says? It could be anything. Right? Um, uh, it could be literally anything. Anything that Sauron had s- scrawled on his ring. Right? Um, uh, and because, I mean, it, it would still prove that the ring that Frodo has now is the ring that Frodo, or that Isildur, took from Sauron. Right, exactly. It could say if found, return to absolutely. Although Aranas, I doubt he would say if found, return to Mount Doom, because that could, you know, <laughs> could be misunderstood. Um, but um, there are all kinds of things that it could say, right? But and what was said therein was already known. For in the day that Sauron put on the one, Celebrimbor, maker of the three, was aware of him. In other words. It's almost like he's here presenting evidence. This is evidence not that the ring that Frodo has is the same ring that Isildur had. Again, whatever the script was, if it matched up, it would prove that, or at least very strongly suggest that, right? Unless there were duplicates made, right? But anyway, it would be pretty pretty convincing evidence uh, that those two rings were the same ring. But it's almost like he's wanting to put it out of any doubt of the provenance of Isildur's ring. Right? Isildur really did have the Ring of Power, right? That was the one ring, right? Isildur actually did succeed in nabbing the ring from the hand of Sauron, right? We don't know that Elrond was standing over him while he was doing it, right? Um, but, um, but anyway, it definitely. Gandalf's identification of the script. Tying it to the words that 
Celebrimbor heard in the day that Sauron first put on the one, right? Um, this is confirmation, right? Unquestioned confirmation, not just that this is Isildur's ring, but that Isildur's ring was indeed the one ring. Just in No one's cast any doubt on that question, right? And yet it's almost like Gandalf is confirming that as well. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Bricktail says, I pictured Sauron speaking the words aloud as he inscribed them on the ring, finishing the magic spell that completed the ring's power. Bricktail's, I've always imagined that too, or something quite like that. That is, that the the final step, like, you know, that that like the, the final thing he does, like to activate the ring, um, is the inscription of the ring. Um, that as he utters those words, I do think he would need to utter them. And that this is why Celebrimbor heard him. Um, it was... Um, <laughs> Tora Marthen says, enter product key. Yeah, something like that. Um, that Because uh, the way that it's described, and I think this is the phrase from, chap- from Shadow of the Past, um, Gandalf says, uh, Celebrimbor... No, it's right here. <laughs> That's where it is. That Celebrimbor was aware of him. Right? Was aware of him? He was hundreds of miles away. Right? I mean, is Celebrimbor like standing up there in in uh, in in Eregion, being like, you know, it was like a million voices crying out and suddenly stilled. Like, how how is Celebrimbor from a distance overhearing Sauron? Down in Barad, you know, in in uh, in Mount Doom, um, speaking these words, right? It always seemed to me fairly clear that this is not just, you know, him saying this and Sauron overhearing, uh, like we were kind of joking about Sauron forgetting to mute himself or Sauron hitting reply all, right? It, it's that there has to be some mechanism, right? But the mechanism is the link between his ring and the elven rings of power, which one of which, at least one of which, Celebrimbor is wearing, right? And when Sauron enacts the ring, when he puts the final touches on the ring, which I have always felt to be that inscription, right? That this, this verse, uh, these words are the words uh, that finally enact the power of the one ring. Um, and they're inscribed. Was he actually carving them by hand on the ring? I rather doubt that. I kind of imagine the letters appearing, you know, the fire letters appearing, uh, you know, from the power of his will as he utters them. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, um, that's definitely how I imagine that happening too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Fourth Thomas says that he'd always imagine the words on the ring uh, were a manifestation of Sauron's will. Um, yeah. Oh, interesting. So your own head canon is that he didn't use raw materials at all, just his own power. Um, that there's no actual gold content uh, in uh, uh, in the ring. Maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of think that there would be, just because that seems to be how most of those Smith types roll. Um, I mean, even Feanor had ingredients, right? And I know it's different with Sauron. Um, but again, I, I think 
generally of the way in which um i mean sauron's con the ring of power concept sauron's ring of power concept is very similar to the tradition uh, you know it's a very old uh uh mythological and fairy tale tradition of the phylactery right a, you know of a, of a physical vessel in which uh, your soul or your spirit or part of your soul or spirit is poured. Um, and um, I mean, it's it's a it's a variant on that. Right. It's not exactly this. It's not like for the preservation of his life. Indeed, it it ends up endangering his life. Um, but um, uh, but still, uh, it, it's 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 a similar kind of concept to that. And so even in in most of those stories, there's some kind of real uh, vessel. Right, that gets filled. Um, so I would tend to think that it wasn't just a uh, a purely mental construct. That there would have been actual, uh, there, there would have been an actual hammer and anvil involved at some point in the making and uh, forging of the ring. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Trifle says he has to be using the volcano for something. Uh, backdrop. Trifle. It has to be. It, it wasn't that he needed the fires for heat. It's just that he needed a sufficiently ominous uh, and uh, uh, you know scary backdrop. Uh, the dramatic element is super important. Um, yes, Tony, and that's the other thing that I think of. Of course, not only uh, Tony's pointing out that uh, thinking about all the Norse legends with the dwarves uh, speaking runes onto their crafts and stuff. Yes. Um, that's, of course, the other thing. We see runes of power inscribed upon things and the runes of power giving the physical object onto which they're inscribed, power, conferring power uh, upon the physical objects onto which they're, they're inscribed. It's obviously not the same here, right? This is, um, it's not just the same as uh, like runes of preservation uh, inscribed on uh, the scabbard of a sword, for instance. But it's also, or the dark um, signs that are written on the um, Morgul blade, right? Remember which Glorfindel can read, uh, can see and read. Um, so there's that stuff, um, which, again, I think po this points in the same direction. It's not the same thing. I mean, this is a different level, but yet not, I think, wholly distinct uh, from that as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tormarthen, exactly. The cracks of doom needed primarily for mood lighting. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, I guess it was a kind of lava lamp, wasn't it, Tony? Now that I think about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Several people are pointing about the sort of the issue with uh, um, ex nihilo creation that Morgoth couldn't do it and probably Sauron can't either. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I hear that. Um, I'm not sure that, that this bothers me from an ex nihilo creation standpoint. The question is just whether or not the ring is a physical ring or a spiritual ring, right? Um, if it could be a, a, a mere physical embodiment of a spiritual thing rather than uh, being a real gold, actual gold ring. It's not that Sauron would create a real gold ring out of nothing, but that it would not actually be. That even the goldness 
of the ring, right, is in fact only a physical manifestation like the physical manifestation of Sauron's body itself, right? He doesn't have a body in the same way. Um, but if he's pouring some of himself into the ring... So I, I can see that working. I don't think that there's a... Uh, even within what we know... Well, what Tolkien seems to have decided on uh, with Middle-earth theology, uh, that that con- contradicts what we can see there. Um, but um, but still, it, nevertheless, despite that, it seems to me that um, uh, it uh, it does... It seems to me to fit better if it's uh, to, to fit better the sort of the overall patterns of how people do things like this and how things like this operate uh, in Middle Earth for it to be a real ring, uh, which is then imbued with power in this sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Um, exactly, Rowan. Even the Silmarils have a body. Yes, yes. Um, okay, good. Um, right, as Angrist says, it wouldn't be, even if he were just creating the ring, it wouldn't be ex nihilo, it's ex Sauron, right? Yeah, he's creating it from his own essence. Exactly. He's not making it out of nothing, he's deriving it from himself, manifesting. He would be taking, sort of separating off the part of himself and embodying that in a ring, right? Rather than, uh, you know, kind of like he's embodying himself in the body he was wearing at the time, right? Um, But, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. JJ suggests that Signa means a ring crafting class. Uh, no. <laughs> no. Uh, no. Um, uh, though it is, you know, the only way or reason I would be tempted to have a ring making class uh, at Signum is just so that we could give a diploma uh, that says ring maker uh, on it, uh, a, a ring maker certificate. <laughs> like that's that's a little tempting, I have to admit. But but I think it'd be a very bad idea, all things considered. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, Arden Cran says, if it were purely f- physical, why would you toss it in a physical volcano? If it were purely spiritual, why would you toss it into a physical volcano to destroy it? Well, I don't know. Uh, but um, but then again, I don't know why it needs a physical volcano anyway. I mean, Gandalf says, you're, to Frodo, your small fire wouldn't melt even ordinary gold. Okay, so if the ring is an ordinary gold what is it? Like, is it just like, I don't think this is a purely physical problem, right? I don't think that the cracks of doom, it's not that like the cracks of doom um, are, you know, because they're hotter than other fires, like you have to get up to a certain, like it's made of a special alloy that will only melt above a certain temperature and only Mount Doom has fires that are above that temperature. And so therefore, you know, that's why it's, you have to go to Mount Doom. It's, I don't think it's a physical, purely physical problem right that. I think it's, this is an issue I think that transcends physics. You have to take it back, uh, to where it was forged. Right. Um, uh, so yeah, so I, I don't, I kind of think that Mount Doom, I mean, otherwise, 
the truly canny thing to do would have been to found, find some other volcano uh, somewhere else, right? Let's go to a totally different part of the continent and find a volcano nobody else is paying attention to, and let's throw the ring in there instead, right? Uh, nobody even suggests that. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't think it's about, like, finding ye old volcano. I think it's about... Um, uh, I think it's, I think, th- I definitely think there's a spiritual element uh, to the cracks of doom in any case. Um, the name kind of tips us off on that one as well. Um, that they're the cracks of doom, right? On the cracks of doom, doom shall fall. Like it's, it's, th- this is more than just a physical mechanism for, uh, uh, for melting down this special kind of gold of which the ring was made. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Good. Matt points out that it's not a question of destroying, which any heat would make possible. It's a question of unmaking, which can only be done in the correct place. Good. Yeah. Tony was just pointing out the same thing, the significance of the word unmaking, uh, there. Yes. You have to go back to the place where it was made in order to unmake it. Um, there is something about, the power of Sauron, which is needed to undo the power of Sauron. Um, it's not about heat, uh, nor was there ever any... Like, Dragonfire could destroy some of the other rings, right? But Gandalf says, nor was there ever any dragon, not even Ancalagon the Black, who's in whom the old fire was hot enough, right? Um, nobody, nobody, no dragon could... So there is no... It's not about heat. It's not about heat. It's something else. Um... Uh, so I do think that was the center of Sauron's power, as we will be reminded when we get there, eventually. Um, it is the center of Sauron's power, and all other powers are there suppressed. Um, that is the significance of that particular volcano, uh, and that's why you've got to chuck it in there. Aranas, I don't know if Sauron made the volcano or if he adopted the volcano. Um, I rather suspect he adopted it rather than making it, but we don't really know. Um, uh, I think that he did adopt it, um, but again, I think it's... Um, yeah, he turned the mount into Mount Doom. Exactly. Yes. Uh, um, exactly. Exactly. Um, ooh! Uh, Eric Crouch was pointing out that Sauron might actually want to make his ring with materials of Arda uh, containing concentrated Morgoth extract. Yes, given how Morgoth had dispersed his own power among the material body of Arda, right, that uh, there would be uh, some uh, useful kind of Morgothian taint uh, in the matters of Arda that he could make it from? That's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought of that at all. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Angris. Morgoth's ring begetting Sar- Sauron's ring. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, good. And Fred Rock Paper was saying that, uh, speaking of Morgoth extract, isn't the old fire in the dragons directly from Morgoth? Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the dragons were one of Morgoth's own development projects. So yes, even if you go back to, you know, the original first couple generations of dragons, whether it's 
Glaurung, the greatest of dragons 1.0, or Ancalagon, the greatest of dragons 2.0, um, those were all still, you know, developed uh, by, uh, by Morgoth himself. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and Fred Rock Paper, absolutely. Morgoth uh, is, heat is one of the things that Morgoth is responsible for. Um, extremes of temperature. Morgoth was all about that. Um, yeah, yeah. So it that does seem to connect again to... Sa- but remember, Sauron isn't himself associated with volcanoes, with like extremes of heat, right? Um, he's not a, a fire god. He's a smith god, right? Uh, that's Sauron's role. Well, smith... Mini god, right? Demigod, uh, assist, god assistant. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yes, so so you're right. Even the way his adopting the uh, even his adopting of the volcano, uh, right? His sort of well, I don't want to use the word sanctify, as that doesn't seem the right word. But you see the kind of thing I'm talking about, right? His uh, uh, I, I keep using the word adoption, though that's a funny word to use. Of the mountain as well, um, uh, but um, anyway, uh, even even in that we can see him not commanding the heat as Morgoth would have commanded the heat, um, and would exactly as you were saying, Fred Rock Paper have sort of instilled it within the dragons, you know, have have given the dragons their fire, right? Um, but he can use it. Right, he's Smith. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, more assimilation than adoption, praise possibly, possibly. Uh, I could go with that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Marielle, I agree. Marielle uh, asks, "Is it a matter of power? Dragon's fire isn't created by a chemical process, most likely, but by their own innate power." Could Mount Doom be filled with power, that being the reason why Sauron chose it for his personal smithy, and why the ring can be destroyed there? Yes, Mario, except I would say... Again, this is why I keep using the word adoption, or possibly, as Praise was suggesting, assimilation. Um, I think that he's not only... He's not only capitalizing on the power intrinsic in a volcano. A volcano is indeed a very powerful thing. Uh, but it is his power in ways that merely being volcanic does not connect it to Sauron intrinsically based on his nature, Sauron's own nature, in the way that it was more similar to Morgoth's own nature. Um, but here, uh, or at least to Morgoth's actions, Morgoth's relationship with middle, with, uh, with Arda. Um, but uh, Sauron, again, he's not a fire god, he's a smith god, uh, using fire for his purposes, for his own ends. But again, remember what Sam experiences when he tries to take out the file of Galadriel in the cracks of doom, right? It doesn't work. All other powers are there suppressed. This is the heart of Sauron's power in Middle-earth. And so when I say adoption, maybe investiture would be even a better word, right? That he has invested that place with his own power. and I think it was the action of making the ring that did that, right? Mount Doom becomes Mount Doom when Sauron forges the ring. I, I think that's that seems to me um, uh, 
fair, almost inescapable, really. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Lupilia, yeah, I'm not saying that it was destroyed. I'm just saying, yes, it was, it was suppressed uh, while there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, good. Um, Tony says, is he making a deal with the devil, i.e. Morgoth? Well, sort of. I mean, he did a long time ago, right? Um, but even that by itself, if you th- if the fires of the volcano make us think of Morgoth, right? Remind us of Morgoth and Morgoth's actions and of Sauron's relationship to Morgoth, it seems to work, right? Um, in as much as the fire is what enables him to do his action, right? We can still see a sense in which, you know, this smith god, right? Demigod, uh, working at these natural forges, right? Uh, You know, from the natural heat of this volcano, he is being supported. He is being upheld by the power, uh, by this Morgothian power uh, of the volcano. And that's that's, you know, how it how it always was. Right. Sauron was always derivative in that sense, um, supported, enabled, empowered uh, by Morgoth, but doing his own thing. Right. Taking that, harnessing it and pushing it in his own direction in the way that he um, invests the mountain uh, and makes it. Mount Doom. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, exactly, Enoch. Enoch says, the One Ring is an extension of Sauron's own being. It seems unlikely that any other fire or creature less powerful than Sauron to destroy that extension of Sauron's being and power. Absolutely, yeah. No, no dragon. No dragon could have done it. Because any dragon who could do it, that would mean, because I agree with Marielle, dragon fire is very unlikely to be the result of a chemical process. Um, dragon fire does seem also an expression of the power and will uh, of the dragon. Um, and so, therefore, a dragon's fire melting down Sauron's ring would mean that that dragon's power had the ability to destroy to overcome uh, and destroy Sauron's own power. It can't do it. But again, notice the trend. Only the power of the enemy can undo the power of the enemy. Only Sauron's own power, invested in the cracks of doom, can destroy the one ring which contains at least a large portion of Sauron's own essence. Only evil can destroy, can bring about the destruction of evil. And this, of course, we will see played out. We will play, see this played out not only in the big splashy thing, uh, that is the ring being chucked into the fire and the ring being destroyed within the volcano in which it was forged, but we will see it also in Gollum himself, right? In the allure of the ring, in the corruptive power of the ring, bringing about the destruction of the ring when nothing else would have done it, right? That trend. Um, and in this, this is this kind of amazing thing that Tolkien does throughout this story. And we can see this, you know, we, we, 
this is already being set up in the discussions of the Cracks of Doom, um, is that it's not just that evil always leads to its own destruction, right? It's not only that there is that trend, that tendency. When you start down the path of evil, you are starting down the path to your own destruction, right? But that evil is always used as a tool for the overcoming of evil itself, right? We see that in the cracks of doom. We see that, we will see that with Gollum as well. And that is um, where I think we can see the truth being borne out of Iluvatar's words to the Ainur in the Ainulindale, right? That no matter what you do, right, no one can alter the music in my despite, and you will find um, that the greatest and most triumphant notes of the enemy will only redound to the glory of Iluvatar, right? Um, anyway, so that's uh, really cool. <laughs> I just, I, I'm always amazed uh, at how that unfolds itself over the course of the book here. But we're wandering a little far afield here. Uh, I mean, a little bit, I'm, I'm out of practice in plowing my way straight through the text here. Let's get back to the text. Um, We'll get back, of course, to the actual inscription, as, uh, of course, we've not yet gotten to the place where Gandalf is quoting it, so we'll get there. Um, I just love the black speech quote. Okay. At once I took my leave of Denethor, but even as I went northwards, messages came to me out of Lorien. Oh, wait, so, sorry, WKU was asking me, what is our conclusion? How did Celebrimbor hear this from afar? Through the connection with the ring. Again, Clearly, his chanting of these lines, uh, his chanting of these lines, which are then being inscribed on the ring, that is absolutely how I believe it happened, too. Um, This final step in the activation of the ring um, is perceived, right? Notice it doesn't say that Celebrimbor heard him. Celebrimbor was aware of him, right? Is aware of the influence, is aware of the power of the ring. Hears, knows uh, that... um, this has happened, right? Uh, of what, of what has happened? Of who Anatar really was? Uh, of the forging of the Ring of Power? Of the the activation of the Ring of Power? Um, so yes, th- again, that's why I think that Gandalf is speaking, sort of indirectly. There again, he doesn't say ke- that Celebrimbor heard these words. He was aware of these words. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and from a... F- right, well, okay, no, he does say... Sorry. <laughs> that adds, and from afar he heard him speak these words. Um, and again, I think he is he is aware of them. He he hears, like, they... They, um, they echo, right? Exactly, Al Carlante. They, uh, it points to a special connection, right? He's the chief creator of the rings besides Sauron. Um, yes. I think that he he is specially aware of this. Um, the idea of him being able to hear Sauron's voice from afar is pretty cool, right? Um, especially in as much as those words are the enactment of this power. Um, that sense of, like, real time. It's not just that, like, days later, Kel- Kel- Celebrimbor was just like, you know... I've been feeling weird the last few days. There's something strange going on here, right? I don't really, I don't really get it. I don't really know uh, what's um, um, 
what's happening there, uh, here. And then he's like, oh, wait, I, you know, and then he figures it out, right? Oh, you know, there's some malign influence affecting the ring in real time. Right. As I mean, this it's it's almost cinematic. Right. I mean, you can you can imagine the cut scenes going on. Right. As Celebrimbor becomes aware of what's happening and Sauron begins intoning uh, his horrible I ams and uh, uh, and Celebrimbor hears them. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there needs to be any art perkis on on Celebrimbor's part, nor do I think there needs to be any investment of power, any sort of connection. The connection is the rings. The rings establish the connection. Um, I don't think that when Celebrimbor takes off the ring, he's able to still hear what Sauron is saying. Again, it's not just a, I'm overhearing Sauron's conversation. It's not a snooping thing. It's um, his hearing, feeling, General being generally being aware of the power that Sauron is exerting, not just the fact that he's exerting power, but the particular kind of power uh, that he's exerting here. Um, yes, exactly, Brandon. Sauron is exerting a lot of power at that moment, and Kelbrimbor seems to have felt it. Agreed. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll get there, trifle. We'll get there. Um, Zephan says it would be interesting to get a description of Sauron becoming aware of the elves becoming aware of him. At the apex of his scheme, discovering that they elude him would make him wrathful. Yeah, it would. This is the thing to keep in mind, right? I mean, the Rings of Power, this is Sauron's big play, right? Through the Rings of Power, he is going to bring about, remember what Morgoth himself failed to do. Morgoth never enslaved the elves. He could destroy them, right? And he was able to to uh, uh, to do his spell of bottomless dread whammy on some individuals who were captured, but he never was able to just bring the elvish population of Middle-earth under his dominion, right? They were always resisting him. He could beat them. Um, he could destroy their cities, but he could never establish dominion over the elves. It never happened, right? Sauron has a cunning mechanism by which he can make this happen, right? And this is pretty cool, right? This is pretty cool. Uh, and yet, it's an almost complete failure. The only part of the Rings of Power project that did not fail were the Nine, right? The Nine panned out. But he was one for four, really, on these projects, right? He failed to dominate the Elves because they were aware of him and they took off their rings and he was not able to control them, right? The primary function of the One Ring never panned out at all, right? The Dwarf Rings, failure. He had to recall those, Right? The dwarves were able to resist his dominion. With the men, that worked out. But finally, the making of the One Ring itself, the, 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 the establishment of this, uh, it only weakened him in the end. And without accomplishing his end. This is an important thing to keep in mind. Remember when they're talking about how 
Remember, you know, Gandalf saying back in the Shadow of the Past that he lacks Sauron. He, Sauron, lacks but one thing to, uh, you know, uh, 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 to complete his victory and cover all the world in the second darkness. He lacks the ruling ring. What does he need it for? What good is it going to do him? Right? Okay. He can control the three rings, but the three rings aren't exactly... I mean, are they stopping him? Totally? Right now? Elrond is going to admit fairly soon that even with his one ring and Sauron without his, he couldn't resist Sauron forever. That Sauron would win, eventually. If they do nothing, they're going to conclude that if they do nothing, Sauron would win. So he doesn't... What does he need the one ring for? Why would his getting the one ring spell the uh, absolute doom of everybody, right? Um, Yes. Al-Karlate, exactly. The ring itself made Sauron stronger. At at the very least, remember, he poured a lot of his own power into the ring, without which he's lost it. He is weaker. When he gets the ring, he will have all of himself again. He's only... What he's got right now without the ring, he's only working... I don't know what percentage he's working at, but he's only working with a percentage of his own native power. Right? a bunch of his native power he invested in this ring, which he does not have anymore, and therefore he does not have access to that power. So yeah, they're only getting Sauron's B-game right now, and they know they can't beat Sauron's B-game. Right? Sauron's B-game is enough for him to, to overcome Elrond with his ring. Right? If Sauron himself comes to Imladris, and, and Elrond won't be able to resist him. Right? Sauron with one hand tied behind his back and no ring, right, can beat Elrond with the with his elven ring, right? <clears throat> so the point is, had Sauron not made the one ring, he'd be much stronger now, right? Um, he'd be much stronger. Uh, he... Ex- he did need centuries to get back to this point, Tony. Exactly. And he's, he can't get back to what he was before. Um, anyway, so even that element, even the forging of the ring of power has backfired on him. And of course it makes him vulnerable. Now, not only is he weaker than he would be, I mean, this whole war of the ring process, right, really would not have been needed, uh, or at least would have been over much more swiftly had he had his full power, right? Uh, but he doesn't have his full power. But not only that, now he's vulnerable. Now he's destroyable in a way that he hadn't been destroyable before. He made his own destruction when he set out to make the ring. So again, in the, in the end, it's hard to say. I mean, you've got the Nazgul, but that's all he's got to show for the whole Ring of Power project. And that's, um, um, you know... Not so good. I agree, Sam, that if he didn't have the Nine, the war with Arnor would have gone differently. That's true. That's true. I'm not saying that there's no gain. Uh, You know, 25% success is better than zero. But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. Yeah, Trifle also points out that there's also the risk that someone wields the the ring against Sauron, and he knows it. Yes, exactly. Um, No, the whole Third Age... Really, I mean, the entire Third Age is the story of Sauron's big plan backfiring on him, right? I mean, you got to imagine somebody, right, 
not quite sure who it would have been because this would be pre-ring rates, right? When he was conceiving the whole ring of rings of power concept, right? Uh, somebody, if he'd had an advisor, his advisor would have told him, you know, boss, um, this could go badly, right? I mean, yeah, if you do this whole ring of power thing, it could help you bring the elves under your dominion, which, you know, even the big boss was never able to do. But, you know, what if you lose it? You're going to be weaker. They could destroy you. They could use your own power against you. I mean, this could backfire in any number of ways, boss. And, um, and of course, it did, right? Once again, the evil choices uh, of the evil Dark Lord um, proving his own destruction, right? Enabling his own destruction. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, yes, uh, Mad Violinist says that Sauron lost the War of the Last Alliance had to come as a shock to him. Yes. Yes, it did. I mean, we have to remember that the War of Last Alliance was fighting against Sauron with his A-game, right? When he had his ring and his whole power entire. Um it's a big deal. And this is why they, you know, um, Aragorn is not Isildur uh, returned. You know, he's not, uh, and he's made that point, right? He doesn't blame Boromir for his doubt. He doesn't much look like uh, Isildur and Elendil as they're represented in the halls there, in the halls of the king uh, in Minas Tirith. Um, But fortunately, Sauron isn't the same anymore either. So, um, you know, that's, um, that's all good. It's, it all works out. Um, yeah. Um, yep. Okay. Um, exactly, JJ. It's almost like history repeats itself, but in a weaker form each time. Yeah. It's almost like we can see that pattern again and again throughout Tolkien's, uh, uh, throughout Tolkien's, Stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Um, let's go to Gandalf's second paragraph here. <laughs> you can tell we haven't had class in a month. Uh, we are ranging really far afield. Uh, you guys are all full of questions and tangents tonight. At once I took my leave of Denethor, but even as I went northwards, messages came to me out of Lorien that Aragorn had passed that way and that he had found the creature called Gollum. So while Gandalf has been away doing his archival research, and we don't know exactly how long that took him, um, Aragorn has found Gollum all by himself. Um, Therefore, I went first to meet him and hear his tale. Into what deadly perils he had gone alone, I dared not guess. Um, Went first to meet him and hear his tale is interesting to me. Um, Not Gollum's tale. Aragorn's tale. Um, The pronoun is kind of interesting there. He originally set out in order to hear Gollum's tale. I need Gollum's story. Where did he find the ring? How long has he had the ring? We need to figure this out, right? Um, Now it's not Gollum's tale that he goes to hear. It's Aragorn's tale 
that he goes to hear. I'm convinced that the his, to meet him and hear his tale, it's Aragorn that he's talking about. Um, which, yeah, Angris was just asking that too, which he. I, I, think, I think that it's Aragorn. Uh, and the, there are two reasons why I think this. First of all, remember Gandalf has just said his quest ended. The quest that started with the search for Gollum, the search for Gollum has now been rendered unnecessary, right? Which he probably didn't point out to Aragorn at the time, right? But uh, but notice, it's not that the falling out, the finding of of Gollum is now totally un, is totally unuseful, right? There is still clearly a utility to that, and this is why I think it's Aragorn's tale that he goes to hear, not Gollum's, to some extent. Gollum's tale is still important, right? It still will give him more information. Um, it will help Gandalf to understand things better. So he's going to go and endure a long speech with Gollum, as we know. Um, but it's not what matters most anymore. What does he want to know now? Why is it Aragorn's tale that he wants to hear? He wants to know what Gollum has been... Where did you find him? Do we know where he's been? Right? The big deal about Gollum now is, does Sauron know? Sauron has not read this. Sauron did not make it to the archives in Minas Tirith, right? So Sauron doesn't know what happened. But if Sauron has gotten his hands on Gollum, then he might know some uncomfortable things, right? And so that's what... Gandalf seems to me to want to hear. So the tale that I think he wants to hear is how did you find him? Where did you find him? And, you know, what's he been up to? Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, good. Um, exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh, Lupilia, as you say, they wouldn't have found out that Gollum went to Mordor and spilled the beans if Aragorn hadn't found him. Uh, yes, yes. Um, into what deadly perils he had gone alone, I dared not guess. Uh, that last sentence is obviously about Aragorn and not Gollum, which is the other reason why I'm pretty confident that the he's in the sentence before are also uh, about Aragorn similarly. Um, into what deadly perils he had gone alone, I dared not guess. Um, but of course, remember, he is going to learn that Gollum has been to Mordor, uh, and that uh, Sauron does know about the finding of the ring, and probably about the Shire. So remember, this is all happening before Gandalf has his conversation with Frodo in The Shadow of the Past, right, in Chapter 2. And that, therefore, um, gives some context to him talking about spies of the enemy, right? Uh, and uh, remember that he had already noticed that there were spies all around the Shire. Uh, and now he's got to be worried. Maybe those were Sauron's spies. Maybe Sauron knows. Maybe he's known for years already, right? And he's been searching for years. Maybe he is on the cusp of finding it now. And this is why when he hears somebody uh, underneath the window 
uh, of the parlor of Bag End, he suspects a spy of the enemy and hauls him in through the window. Right. Um, yeah. Now, Turambar says, wasn't it kind of lucky that Gandalf went off and only then was Gollum found? Um, yes. Yes, it is uh, a piece of luck. Um, I, I do like the suggestion. Uh, I forget who is making that suggestion. Tarlonio was suggesting that, you know, Aragorn uh, uh, finally, having managed to shed uh, the liability, is now able to get down to some serious tracking once, uh, once he's on his own uh, without... Uh, uh, now he's not lumbered with his wizard any, any longer. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I, that's kind of an attractive idea to me. But, uh, uh, but I think most likely... It is uh, uh, it is chance and meant to be some kind of chance. Uh, Fort Dauntless was pointing out earlier also that it's slightly shocking that Gandalf and Aragorn should succeed in their quest at the same time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Al Carlante, I agree. It is interesting that Gandalf calls Gollum a creature here. That phrasing is interesting and in that he had found the creature called Gollum. Um Clearly, although he brought it up with Frodo uh, in the shadow of the past, he's not going there here, right? Um, The creature called Gollum, nobody else knows what kind of creature he is. Um, You know, he's uh, maybe not quite one of those nameless things that crawls around deep, deep under Moria, but he's at least one of their next door neighbors, right? So creature seems fair enough. Um, but, um, the actual origin of, uh, of Gollum, right. Going back to, you know, his, uh, his roots being in hobbit kind, not, not essential to this inquiry right now, maybe even in some ways, um, I don't know. I can I can certainly understand why Gandalf doesn't bring that up in this context here. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Gandalf uh, Gandalf's waxed eyebrows says possibly also that's the wording that Lorien's messengers used. Um, yes, or at least we'll use. It's possible that he's echoing that there. Um, right, dragon. Uh, Tia Arachne says, uh, almost everyone at the council has barely heard of hobbits before. I would not, it would not do immediately to give them all the thoughts. So when a hobbit gets the ring, he becomes that. And you're asking to give another hobbit the role of ring bearer. Yeah, it can only complicate things, really. Um, uh, yeah, it could raise the question of hobbitish uh, track records. Now, I mean, you've got Bilbo and you've got Gollum, so they kind of balance out. But, uh, but sure, you know, yeah, there's uh, there's definitely potential concerns, you know, in both directions here. Um, but I think more importantly, it's like a piece of trivia, which Frodo it would might be interested in, even though he calls it an abominable notion, right? Um, because you know he is a hobbit and uh, kind of interested in family history, right? Uh, but nobody at the council, it's, it's an academic question, 
in a sense, right? Uh, Gandalf has gone in for Hobbit lore, um, but this is not a time for Hobbit lore. Uh, it's not relevant. Nobody cares. Uh, though, as Matt points out, a 50-50 record is uh, better than the other races have. So, yeah, damn, fair enough. Um, okay, anyway. Um, into what deadly perils he had gone alone, I dared not guess. Nor are we told. Um, but I can't help but remember Strider's pained reaction back at the inn at Bree. Um, the bad memories he has of the Nazgul. Um, his comments that the hobbits don't fear the riders enough and all that kind of thing. Um, and I suspect that to come from this time. I, I think that this, um, this line of Gandalf's here is sort of an oblique reference back to that other thing is a story that's not told, right? What, um, torments did he experience in fact, right? What difficulties and perils did he encounter alone? While Gandalf was, uh, you know, tossing back pints uh, in the archives, apparently, if Peter Jackson can be believed. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. All right. I am not going on to the next slide because it is field trip time. That was... Uh, plenty of discussion, and we did at least get through an entire slide, so that's something, getting back into a, uh, getting back into the swing of things here. Um, we will, of course, hear Aragorn's response and more about the interrogation of Gollum uh, as we move forward, and we're going to begin coming towards the ring inscription. So we'll get back to the ring inscription and think some more about that. Uh, I'm excited to talk about the ring inscription. Um, but, um, yeah, one's full slide in four weeks, right? That's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, uh, so, yeah, we should be back next week. So, upcoming schedule for classes. Um, we should be good for the next three Tuesdays. I'm going to be missing a week in the middle of August. I'm going to be going on vacation with my family. So, I'll be out uh, for the week of the, I think it's the 18th of August. Um, but I'll be, we'll, I'll be here through then, even the week of Mythmoot, because Mythmoot doesn't start until Thursday. Uh, so I'll be able to do my Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, broadcasts, um, then. So, okay. Thanks everybody for joining us. It's field trip time. So let's, uh, shift over. Uh, for the field trip here. Unfortunately, Valori couldn't join us tonight. Uh, she is under the weather here today, so uh, Druid's Fire is going to join me, I think. Um, and we are headed to Angmar, so I'm trying to figure out, right? Mm-hmm. I, I was trying to figure out what to do, because I was looking at the map of Angmar uh, before... Oh, hang on. Before we, before we started. Hang on. I'm just not working here. Let me go... Show map of uh, area door Angmar. Okay, um, we've we started down here in the Ram Duoth, and we and uh, and then up here. So we did this whole area down in the southwest. 
We did the Imlag Balhorth. We were up around in Himbar. We did the Malinhad and, and the mm-hmm. Dwarvish settlement down at Gabil Shathur. We just finished exploring the, the Maithad and the Gorothlad down here in the southeast. Uh, so that means we pretty much only have two areas of Angmar left to discover. Uh, and that is the rift of Nurzgashu up here uh, and uh, Urgarth and Karndum up here. Both of those are difficult places to get to for different reasons, um, but we're going to start with the rift tonight, I think. So, oh, hang on. I forgot to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter. I see I'm so out of practice. Uh, thanks, Twitter folks. See you later. And, okay. Very good. So, uh, but again, everybody feel free to join us on to join us on Twitch. So there we go. Okay. Um, so yeah, so I think we're we're gonna head up to the rift. But that means if you, sometimes people who are low levels can kind of hang around with us and we can sort of protect them, that's gonna be harder. So I'm gonna start from Gathforth near as usual. Um, but that's gonna be much trickier today. Um, because the route out to the overland rift out to the route, uh, the route out to the rift is, um, rather fraught. Yes. It's dangerous. It is dangerous. Uh, so anyway, uh, we can, we can, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to ride out there. Uh, I mean, I can, I can do so without, uh, too much molestation, but I am not confident that we'll be able to protect really low-level characters today. Maybe, if we have enough people, There'll be dragons we'll be and elites and other unsavory sorts along the way. Yeah, it's going to be a real challenge to uh, protect those folks. So, Basically, if you're under level 60, you're going to be in trouble. It's going to be, yeah, yeah. Challenge. Ride like the wind and, you know, fight your favorite deity. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's designed to be, I mean, the, the, as you can see from the map, this whole, like, neck out there towards the rift is sort of, it's designed to be a very challenging kind of gauntlet. Okay. Though, so, to be fair, uh, I ran out to the rift on a level 50 tune on the PvP server a week and a half ago, so it was fun time. It is possible. It is possible. Yeah. But, um, okay. Uh, Alright. I think we can... Alright, let's head out. And let's see if I can... I've only been to the Rift once, so... I'm not really sure of the best route to get there. I mean, you can go all the way around uh, Barad Gularon, uh, and I just typically go down uh, to the uh, to the low sections early on and just cut across from there. Right. But you're wading through lots of mobs to do so. Yeah. Okay, well, I will be interested to see anything that we see along the way. So 
as I said, I've only done it once in my life, uh, and I don't have very clear memories of it. So I'm interested just to sort of see the terrain as we go. Okay, so... You do like to take the scenic route around that mountain for some reason. I don't know why. I I like the little archway, you know? Like it's a fun I know, the archway is pretty cool. I, I always aim for the archway. That's That's always my route. But I know when we're actually... You know, heading out to the east, it's not exactly the fastest route. True enough, true enough. Okay. All right. So there's a newer slash old star in the sky in Minas Tirith. Any certain version of Minas Tirith in the game now? It's really cool. There's a new star in the sky? Well, an old star, but a new star. Uh, one, one Mr. Eärendil, uh is visible at night in Midsummer Minas Tirith, if you ever go that down that way. Cool. Cool. Okay, now this is the place where I took the wrong turn before. So going down there, is that's the way down into Imlad? No. Yes. Wait. Down, down the mountain here is down to the gullies around Barad Gularan. Okay, so we... But this is heading up towards the north. So, okay, we... so you want to take the path heading southeast. So we do want to go south from here? Okay. Southeast. Right. All right, so we'll head south. Huh. Keep forgetting about those dower hands that are around here. Okay. Okay, so if you go down here along the bottom of the valley, toward almost due south, you'll come across the, like at the base of the ridges up, there is a path to the rift. It's a path. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have to go down? Yeah, to the... To the down below the knees of the mountains because there's a path down through here. Okay. All right. Around the basement. And this is like that first one that came to. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's fine. Looking around. Baron Gulleron confuses everybody, so. Yeah. 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 I have gotten lost almost every single time I've ever been here. So we have to go down here. So we're down in the gullies now. Yep. Come over to me. Okay. Yeah. And I'm going to hang a left down here. Alright, so we go around the base beneath the bridges? Yep. Okay. Yeah, Edith, I agree. This is worse than the old forest. It's easy to get, like, to kind of lose your bearings in the old forest, but, uh, but it's actually... Here's where the lead start. Okay. Alright, so we got, right... And an elite drake and an elite giant. A skull smasher, okay. Okay, and these are still the Baragularon bridges. Mm-hmm. And so we go out this way. Wow. Oh. Straight up, okay. To the northeast. Okay. 
bunches of giants. So giants and drakes are the dominant mobs in this area so far? Mm -hmm. uh, there'll be some uh, Angmarium Iron Crown folks as well. His tattooing is kind of interesting. His chest tattoo is very... Okay, well, when he bends over forward, it looks a little bit less like the Eye of Sauron, but it looks slightly Eye of Sauron-like when he stands like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, as long as his posture is good, it looks kind of like the, the Eye of Sauron. The arms... I'm trying to place where I've seen this style before. Especially the arms. Hmm. I'm trying to remember what the tattooing is. I think there were some in um, in Edwife. Yeah, maybe down there. Maybe I'm, or or maybe I'm thinking of some of the 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 tattooing patterns from the humans down in the Dunland area that are kind of like that. Yeah, some of the um, Fiocluse, the yeah. Falcon Clan folks. Yeah. And yes, Catriana for the Horde. Yeah. Huh. Right, so only but it's this... interesting to see that he's clearly been taking some trophies. Uh, his attire, he's got like you know, somebody's shield there. It's also there's also a white hand on his loincloth. There's a white. Yeah, there's a there was a white hand on his loincloth. On the front of his uh, loincloth. Yeah, I was looking at the the shields and whatnot, and there is actually a white hand symbol there. Oh yeah. Oh wow! Like right over his groin. That's nice. And it looks like he stole somebody's axe, somebody's helmet. Yeah. A uh, couple of shields. A couple of shields. Yeah. So he's actually made like a cod piece out of shields. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Some dwarven ones and one looks definitely elvish in, in nature with all yeah. the filigree on it. Yeah. Yeah, and the hand right over his groin. Okay. It's a little suggestive anchoristic. <laughs> Just slightly. Okay. Sorry for the distraction, but uh, no, it's, it's very interesting. Um, that's a nice little touch there. There's a gaunt you know, death lord the over here in the corner. The way, the way that these drakes kind of want to... Sorry, kill my horse. Um, the way that these drakes kind of lumber around, I've always found very interesting. The way that these the drakes are, are bipeds, first of all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I've seen the dragons crafted this way in many different video games so like the wyverns and arc um yeah. drakes and in wow but they also have four limb drakes actual dragons that you can fly there too yeah they they are a little bit more wyvern like though they're not they don't have tails so they're not classic oh, well they do have tails but they they have runty tails not big mm -hmm. like scorpion-esque tails like wyverns traditionally have in a lot of other places um but uh there's an iron crown dude over here. It is interesting the way that they have uh developed the drakes as a, a sort of middle ground, you know, between first of all, I, I, I like the way that they've 
Well, I kind of like. I, I'm I, I'm not a huge fan of 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 worms in the game, like the way that they've taken the word worm and and sort of made it into a separate species. I mean, I understand that you know in order to have some variety among the mobs, they need to you know kind of make as many, uh, and especially the way that they you know like to have the mobs be in some ways sort of hierarchical, right? So that you have more and more challenging levels of the same kind of sort of mob. Um, Mm -hmm. So having like, you know, the worms and then the drakes and then the full dragons um, uh, are, is good. And I like the fact that Lotro, I think, has done a really good job of not overdoing dragons, right? It would be easy to overdo dragons. Um, because, you know, dragons are so significant in Tolkien's stories that for... Oh, you, you know, haven't been Erebor yet. They, I haven't they, been they, Erebor yet. Yes, when, when we get Wigand up that a ways, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to... There's there's some lore we're going to talk about. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, no, I'm excited about that. Um, but I'm just thinking, in all the game that I've seen so far, then, I should say, I should clarify. I mean, we do get dragons in several places, <clears throat> but they're always momentous, right? It's always a really mm-hmm. big deal. You know, yeah. we get yeah. we, we get the little wormlings and we get the, the little drakes. And I don't know what they're suggesting as the like the species or the the origin of drakes like this. I'm not sure what the in game kind of lore is on where these drakes kind of came from. Um uh but um I believe there is some lore um because there is Lost lore books that you can acquire in uh, Northern Mirkwood and you know subsequent uh, parts of the game and like the Air Mister and whatnot we, we, that we tell the story of you know yeah sorry <laughs> uh, they tell the, yeah they they tell the story of you know where the dragons are going you know who's who and um, one of the lo- the lost lore books are, are famous for having voice acted lines and one of them was written by Smaug ah. So they cast a voice actor who's not Benedict Cumberbatch because SSG can't afford him. Right, right. Uh, but uh, read a whole series of stuff about the story of what the dragons were doing up in the Grey Mountains. Love and, of course, what the deal was with the dwarves. I'm excited. I'm excited about that. I, I can't wait for Mordor. That's going to be a lot of fun. Um, especially... When Griffith gets to Mordor, that's what I'm really looking for. Oh my gosh. Um, okay, now here, here we have trolls looking runty next to the giants. I know, and normally those guys are, have, the, the Gorothrog have always been like the, you know, the big bads that you could solo once yeah. in a while, and now they're just like the puny guys. Yeah. Yeah, they look like this dude's henchmen here, or like his bodyguards. Um, Minions. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so these are the gates. It's uh, the gate of Gath Uyor. Uyor. Um, what's this scaffolding business? Is it... I mean, the gate, I assume, is that stone and metal thing, but what's all this wooden structure? I don't get this. Well, the rift was, a, of course, a sealed location. Um, the whole story of the rift was... There's a Balrog down there, and all of this stuff was to keep it contained. So some of this stuff dates back to uh, the fall of Thangorodrum. Right. But we're... Are these, like, buttresses? Who made this? 
I'm trying to figure out, like, are these defensive structures? Are they construction edifices? Are they... Lumber stacked up? I, I, can't, I don't... I can't... I can't understand. Yeah, it, it kind of... I think they're trying to get the impression of this was something that was buried... And this was like a seal that somehow got shattered. I mean, you'll see more of that once we get to the actual rift itself. But this looks like they were trying, at least in my opinion, they were trying to go for something to explain the fact that suddenly this is open and available to people. Yeah. And as JJ was pointing out, there's chains. Yeah. Well, chains have featured in many places uh, for keeping things uh, contained. Melkor, for example. Right. It's a theme. Yes. So the chains hanging down are designed to suggest the breaking open of the chains, I guess. Huh. Just looks like a, if it, if this was a defensive structure, it looks rather delicate. Is what I'm saying. Uh, or, or like uh, on the flimsy side, especially compared to say this, which looks substantially sturdy. Except what are, what are these beams? Wooden beams? Yeah, it looks like they're Propping trying to hold it in place. Seriously, are those stone beams or are they? They look like stone to me, which seems very strange. I, I would use some kind of metal. Well, this one is obviously, it has to be metal because it's bent, it's not cracked. Yeah. Stone buttresses, I guess? No, you're right. That one is bent. I don't know. And this is extremely thick. Like vault safe kind of thick. Yeah. It's not or hiding your thermonuclear secrets in the middle of a mountain kind of thick. Yeah. It's also very plain and militaristic. I was just thinking the same thing, that there's very little evidence of what... I mean, most things, you know, that we see... It's like the side of a Dalek. We can identify, right? It does look like the side of a Dalek. Um, yeah, most of the things... Uh, like, I mean, I couldn't identify this. Like, dwarvish, elven, you know, human. I, You can't tell. There's no obvious distinguishing It's pure functionality, yeah. uh, which is very unusual. Most of Middle-earth that we've ever come across has had some sort of identity to it. Yes. You know, despite, no matter how functional, like, dwarvish stuff is generally pretty functional, but there's also a sort of beauty and a style to it. This has no style. This is like, we're going to throw a big slab of metal in the ground. Yeah, yeah, and even the even the you know the bumps just look like rivets, as Aranos was saying, um, like they're not even designed for decoration. And here we got more of these uh, the giants pickup sticks, which I think is a pretty good theory as to what these could possibly be. Um, it seems to be a little bit more structure to it on this side, like there was something. See, like that's a scaffolding. Yeah, clearly. Yeah, but it's really crude. That's not an elvish scaffolding. Oh, el- elves would put some style on it. Yeah, elves on their worst day wouldn't make a uh, wouldn't make scaffolding like that. That looks like orc work. Huh. 
Okay, now this is becoming a genuine road. Ah, now. Now we've got a ruin. Now, see, these have some identity. These basically yes. scream, you know, Gondorian. They do. The stone certainly looks like the kind of stone that the Gondorians tended to use. Kind of like the base of the 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 brick statue at the King's Crossing. Uh -huh. Look at the look at the mm -hmm. decorative work around the 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 you know the pediment here. Uh huh. I do see that. Yeah. So that looks. Smell like the ivy. Yeah, that looks like it's likely elvish. Or, you know, Numenorean. Possible. But I believe this is first stage because they're talking about a Balrog being uh, kept down here. Yeah, I mean, I would think based on... Oh, now we've got an orc camp. Right, or at least an orc... Uh, oh, wait, who's, who's over here? Oh, yeah, look at these guys. Oh, and they're fur hats. We've got hillmen, laborers in fur hats. And uh, a blogmall overseer. Okay. And definitely a mishmash of races here. We've got trolls. Yeah. We've got orcs. We've got humans. Yeah, we've had we've had everybody. Can I was mentioning like these hillman protectors? They have like a clan name or a kin name of Tarkrip yeah. slave. So the hillmen are the slaves of the orcs. Yes. Yes, they do seem to be not fully naturalized. Uh, you know, like they're not like full Angmarim. Mm -mm. Okay, yeah. This is a... I love how his back looks like a gaping maw. You know, it looks like... I know, and it, yeah. It looks like the sarlacc or something on his back, you know. Um, is there a bounty hunter in there? Yeah, I don't know. Um, well, digest for a thousand years. Yeah. I guess that's what he wants to say. That's what he's trying to evoke about his lumbar region. Um, <laughs> okay, so... Boy, these orcs are really colorful. This guy with the purple hair and the guy with the red face up there. And Yeah, they almost look festive. Extremely unmoved laborers and cowering servants. Yeah. yeah, this one orc with the purple hair has got very red eyes. Mm -hmm. like, not just like makeup around his eyes, but his actual eyeballs are very red. Right. Yeah, the way that the these hillmen are are cowering, except these these laborers who are completely unmoved in the front. Um, they're, they're clearly captives, not you know collaborators. I'm definitely not here by choice, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and then this looks like a, a general camp down here. Okay, just some roughshod tents, some folks snoozing. Okay, now look at the dead trees. The dead trees are really interesting because we've been going through completely barren rock land you know, obsidian cliffs and whatnot all the way up through here. And now all of a sudden we find these old dead trees. So I'm trying to imagine what this would have looked like, presumably at the time when there were elves living here, as we can still see the evidence of in these 
which I'm still taking from the, especially from the green border around the base of these stone pediments to be uh, elves. That they would have planted trees. But notice there may have been trees naturally here. It's possible. It's possible. Um, Interesting that they've been left. You know, we have like the, you know, the corpses of trees sitting here. Um, We should. They're not being used for firewood. Because as you can see, the fire here in the corner, it's a different kind of wood. Yes. Yeah, they're not using that. And given the, the number of years, the centuries between point A and point B, if this was originally first stage, we're talking at least 6,000 years. Um, it's possible these trees are petrified and won't burn. Yeah. JJ, I didn't notice a banner that we hadn't seen before. I'll keep my eye out to see if we see it again. If not, we'll sure get another chance. Okay, so here's the main event. Huh. Oh, now that stone structure is really interesting. The the spiky bit here on the front part. So mm-hmm. it looks like a shield and a sword. Or a spear. Possibly a spear. Um, Symbols of Gilgalad. I'm wondering. It doesn't look like Gilgalad's shield, but it could be. Um, it could be a Gilgalad-esque kind of thing. Um, what interests me about this is that it looks... At first, when you come around the corner, the first thing that I thought of were those um, the spiky, like, fish hook things that the Angmarim make out of metal. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, and this has something... It, it recalls the shape of those, except unlike those, this is representational, right? We can clearly see what looks like a shield and what looks like a blade, if not a, you know, either a spear or a sword. I tend to think sword because of the proportions um, and also because it's being, you know, because it's right behind a shield. Um, but, uh, um, but anyway, those are, they're clearly representational. It's just kind of making me wonder, could the Angmarim be um, deliberately um Imitating this in some way, you know the, the, you know these things as sort of symbols of power here, and you know we've seen those Angmarim metallic fishhook things being, uh, you know, set all over the place, you know, various places. Uh, yeah, but they generally don't go for white and blue as their colors. They or gold. They generally go for black and reds. And yeah, green, no, but see, so. but but it's not like this at all. I mean, that is to say, they don't represent a shield. Not only do they not, is it different? But they don't represent the shield. Yeah, I think this is a sword because I think we can see the pommel coming down here. Um, you know, the hilt of the sword coming down and ending there in the middle of the shield, so I think it is a sword. I was actually kind of thinking of a warden shield, but it's not the right shape for a warden shield, mm-hmm. but it could work, because the sword whatever the weapon is in the middle it's clearly separate from the shield itself. It fits yes. into it, but it's separate, because you can see there's clearly defined shaft for whatever yep. that thing is in the middle, and then there's yep. the two halves of the shield around it. Yeah, exactly. And very little in the way of 
shapes. We get what looks like a, almost like a four-pointed star, in the center yeah. of the, in the center of the the, the medallion, the sword here. Yeah, um, the gold. This these kind of golden blue stripes. I don't remember ever seeing, anywhere else. Um, yeah, they're, they're they're. I don't think they've ever used this iconography anywhere else in the no, game. No, I don't recall seeing it. The sword, the shape of the sword itself reminds me of some of. It reminds me of some of the, like, stylistically reminds me of some of the statues that we've seen elsewhere. Um, yeah. Very crude Gondor. Because Gondor loves the white stone for most of their stuff, uh-huh. except when they use black stone for, like, the walls of Minas Tirith and Orthanc. Yes. But in general, white stone always makes me think of Gondor. Yep. Yep. Maybe it's a Numenorean thing, like very early Numenorean. So it has some elvish influences from Elros. Right. But I wouldn't think it would be Numenorean. I mean, well, I'm trying to not take into account yet what we know of the rift itself. Um, But, um, yeah, sorry, as I'm looking at the banners here, I think, no, I mean, this is the Iron Crown banner. Um, and the big eye and crown banner. We've definitely seen this one in several places. This one is not the orc banner. This is the human banner. Yeah. Um, and the, oh, right, oh, this one? This eye and crown? This seems to me only a making more visible. So this other one, which we've seen fairly often, um, looks, is, you know, sort of the, the kind of pure iron crown. But um, uh, this one makes the eye beneath the crown more apparent. Um, it's almost like, it's almost like this one has the iron crown above a closed eye, right? And then this one has the eye open beneath it, like it's the same two lines but the one in which they're parallel because the eye is closed and the other one which they're open and have the vertical pupil um, Maybe I, two separate sub-factions of orcs, like this is one group of orcs and this is the other group of orcs but they're yeah. all subjugated under the, the Iron Crown in general Right, right, yeah, and uh, showing more or less overt uh, connections It to might them. tie to those little pyramids they have along the side of the the rift, the, the seal itself. Because if you notice, some of them are brown and some of them are green, just like these two separate banners. Right, right. Yeah. Well, couldn't ask for a better close-up of the hilt. I don't understand... I don't understand what these lumps are on either side. They look almost like the heads of snakes. But, yeah, I, they, or maybe a hint of a tree, possibly. I'm not, yeah, I don't really know. It's clear when I first saw it on the uh, the main one that we looked at, I thought, oh, maybe it's just they're showing an imperfection of the rock, but this is the same exact model. Yeah, no, I think these are definitely designed. Yeah, definitely are. 
Yeah. Oh, and these little curly cues say elvish work more clearly than anything else you could choose. Oh to yeah. See. No dwarf ever made little curly cues like that. Um, With flowers and everything, dwarves mm-hmm. don't do flowers. Yeah. Now this whole round seal thing is very elvish. Okay, that crack I just jumped over is deeper than I thought it was. Well, it is a rift. Uh-huh. Okay. And there's some scaffolding down in there, too. Okay, but now these things look like the top of the dwarvish historical markers. Yeah, they do, which I thought was interesting that they're the same two colors as the two orcish banners. Hmm, yeah. But they're not all the same size. There's a couple back here that aren't the same size. Either they've sunk into the ground, which would be unusual. I mean, this is obsidian, so I wouldn't imagine something sunk in. But you can see pieces of stuff sticking out of the ground anyway. Yeah, and as JJ says, it's only symmetrical along one axis. Yes, that is true. This, yes, this here is the axis of symmetry. Uh in the middle here but it's not yeah it's not it's not centered on the okay it's not that the 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 pattern goes around the center it's uh it's in two definite it's definitely oriented like this is the bottom of it i would say right here um it has a definite sort of direction in that way. Yeah, it's pointing to the sword and shield back here behind me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about those little pyramids. I guess the pyramids are designed to have all been around the edge of the seal. And they're presumably original. Maybe they're all... I mean, because we're seeing a, mis- a, a mis- mishmash. Uh, we have stuff that's clearly says, oh, hey, this is men doing something here. Here's some stuff with Elvish. Maybe this is the Dwarven uh, contribution to this. The pyramids. Yeah, I'm one, uh, that's yeah. what I was wondering, too. If there was some kind of collaboration? I don't know. I don't know. And again, for those of you who are thinking about the in-game story of the Rift, I'm being deliberately like agnostic about that. I'm trying to judge based only on what we see, not by what we're told about the rift. So people were asking like, well, you know, but wait, what age was this done in? Well, that's what I'm trying to guess based on observation. That's the fun part. Uh, Looking up the answer is cheating. Certainly looks very old, but of course that doesn't say anything. Many things built in the third age are very old. Um, The color is very striking. The kind of purplish pink color on the stone is quite remarkable. The like the iridescence of it. Yeah, it's kind of like it's generally purple in in our terms of you know, they generally use purple in game to represent void or shadow or darkness without using just black. So maybe this was painted purple to be a notification that hey something bad is down here. Maybe.
Yeah, JJ's wondering if the dwarves could have supplied the inlay. Uh, maybe. Maybe. It's, it reminds, uh, reminds me of their blue cities out to the east, possibly. Isn't the stable master over here somewhere? Uh, up at the ranger camp. Ah, the ranger camp. I haven't gotten to the ranger camp. Okay. Oh, man, it's getting late. Okay, all right. Let's go up to the ranger camp, meet the stable master, and then we can come back and finish this up next week. We can look around down inside the rift. We can look around the camp more. Oh, there's a nice banner. Not even going to look at it yet. Hang on. We'll save the camp. But this way I'll just get the stable master, and then we can just ride straight here next week. Mm-hmm. Okay, right, and we'll start by looking around this very interesting place. What can I do for you? All right. Excellent. So now we'll be able to swift travel here from Gathforth near next time. Okay. Very good. All right. So we're awesome. going to, we will end here. We'll look around these ruins here at the camp next time. And we'll work out back from here um, and see what further conclusions we can come to about the rift based on our observations. All right. Very good. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we made it to the rift and got to start looking around a little bit. We'll finish up looking around here next week, and then we'll think about figuring out how we're going to head out into the Karn Doom area. That's a challenging kind of place to go, and we're going to have to do a bunch of fellowship things rather than just going about in a big group like I prefer to do. Um, but uh, we'll we'll figure that out next time. Anyway. Thanks, everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Thanks for joining me, Druid's Fire. You're most welcome. Good night, everybody. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.